You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 1, so it would be good to have that out and open on your lap where you can see that and, uh, and look that over as we're, uh, as we're going today. And just before we get started, if you are new to Stonegate today, my name is Rodney and I'm one of the pastors here at Stonegate. And it is such an honor to have you. We're really grateful that you're going to worship Jesus with us this morning. And um, if you'll make sure you grab this card, it should be under your seat. Um, there is a, a red side and a black side that looks more like this. And if you'll make sure you fill that black portion or that black side of the card out, the guest information uh, section, uh, if you'll do that for us during the service, at the end of the service, you can put that into the little offering basket as we pass it around. That would really help us serve you. So if you would do that, we would so greatly appreciate that. And if there's any ways that we can be praying for you, you can fill out the red side, put that in the offering basket, and that will put you on our prayer list. And we would love to be a people who are interceding on your behalf. So if you'd do that for us, that would be great. Okay, so we are in the middle of an Advent set of sermons, a set of sermons on Advent. Now, Advent comes from an old Latin word meaning arrival. So Advent is the, the, you know, basically it's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. So it's those four Sundays of the year that we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, where we get to contemplate and think through God himself putting on flesh and walking among us. That's what we're getting to contemplate. And so two weeks ago, when we began this set of sermons, uh, the, the title of that first sermon was A Promise Made. We went all the way back into Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And one of the things that we were trying to, to lift up out of the Christmas story is that, uh, you know, really just like any story, um, you have to know the setting of the story. You have to know like where the, the plot clots, where tension is introduced, where conflict is introduced to the story. If you want to have a deep appreciation for the big climatic parts of the story. And so one of the points we were trying to make that day is that at the end of the day, the Christmas story doesn't start in a manger. It starts all the way back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in a garden. And there in the garden, we find that God had created us with everything we needed to flourish as human beings. Our first parents sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit the most catastrophic chapter in the Bible. And it's such an ironic chapter, Genesis chapter three, because right in the middle of God pronouncing a curse, his judgment on the serpent, on the woman and on the man, um, right in the middle of him pronouncing this curse, this judgment, God also gives a promise that there's gonna be one that's gonna come from the woman. And this one that's gonna come from the woman, he is gonna crush the head of the serpent. So you have this promise injected right into the catastrophe of Genesis chapter three. So we talked about a promise made, Genesis three, this, this one that would come that would set things aright. Then last week, Jimmy did such a good job of kind of teasing out the idea of a promise promise kept. Um, he looked at the tabernacle system of the Old Testament, and that whole tabernacle system finds its roots in Genesis chapter 3, in the problem of our sin and the promise of one coming that would set our sin aright again. He did such a good job of showing that John 1 shows us that at the end of the day, the fulfillment of the whole tabernacle system, that whole tabernacle system is really pointing to the promise of Genesis chapter 3, and it culminates in the person and work of Jesus, who John 1 said, he came, he he wrapped on flesh and he tabernacled among us. He came to deal with our sin, to restore for us what was lost in the garden, namely the presence of God. So that was last week. And today we're gonna look at Matthew chapter one, one through 17. And uh, if, if you want kind of a name of, of today's sermon, I'm just calling it a promise for all. So we're gonna consider the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I know that most of y'all have been waiting your entire life to hear a sermon on a genealogy. I know that. I'm so glad that I could serve you this morning in that. 
And, you know, I don't know if you're anything like me, but whenever I come to genealogies in the Bible, my kind of reflexive sort of response to that moment is to resort to either one of two things, skipping or skimming. That is my just natural kind of reflex is like skipping right over that and let's get to something that's going to be good. And so I want to just start by reminding you of an assumption that we need to have when we come to any portion of the scriptures. And that assumption is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And there Paul says, all scripture is God breathes. All scripture, even the genealogy, it is God breathed and it's useful for teaching, correction, reproof, training, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the assumption that we need to go to every passage of the scriptures with, even genealogies. I'm just praying that the Lord would give us like an expectation this morning and an assumption that if we come to a passage like Matthew 1 and we start to look at the genealogy, that there somewhere, if we start digging, we're gonna find gospel gold buried under that thing. We're gonna find some themes that we can lift up that tell us about the person and work of Jesus that will be edifying to us, that will build us, that will equip us to be all that God would have us be as his people. So I'm just praying that we would come with that sort of an expectation, that sort of eagerness knowing God wants to use this passage for that end in your life and mine this morning. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna just point out two things. If I've looked at this passage and just thought it over this week, two things that have stuck out to me. And I wanna share those with you two things that we can learn from the genealogy of Jesus. Two things we can learn. Thing number one goes like this. First thing we can learn is the genealogy shows us something about Jesus. The genealogy shows us something about Jesus. There are things about Jesus that we can learn as we consider and think through this genealogy. Let me just kind of run through a, a few of these. The first thing the genealogy teaches us about Jesus is that Jesus is historical that Jesus is historical. In other words, Jesus was a real person born into a real family who lived in a real place in a real time and in a real culture. Like one of the first things that, that Matthew wants to convince us all of is that Jesus is not a mythological person. He's not someone that was just kind of made up somewhere. Jesus is a real historical person. This is who Jesus is. You know, and it's, it's, it's interesting and just really amazing to think about like this morning. It's a Sunday morning in December that on a morning like this around the world, that there will literally be millions of people worshiping the real person of Jesus. R really even billions of people that are doing that this morning. You know, it's no stretch to say that no other pebble has been dropped into the pond of humanity that has produced so great of a ripple as Jesus. I mean, at the end of the day, we divide time by Jesus like this is the way we kind of organize our history, our, our timelines are all organized around this person, Jesus, who is still today shaping and influencing and molding the way the world is working. So the first thing uh, Matthew wants us to see is this Jesus is not mythological. Jesus is an historical, real person. Here's the second thing we learn about Jesus. The genealogy shows us that Jesus is the promised one. 
that Jesus is the promised one. A guy named Mark Dever wrote a two volume set um, one was on, for, volume one was on the Old Testament. Volume two was on the New Testament. And so basically what he did in this two volume set is he took every book of the Bible and did like a summary of each book of the Bible. So he's got all the books of the Bible in there, uh, you know, a five, six, seven page summary of, of each book. And he put the Old Testament ones together and the New Testament ones together. And I love what he calls his Old Testament book, that, that volume. He calls it the Old, uh, Old Testament and then here's the tagline for that volume, promises made. Now, I love that because I think that is a great way to think about the Old Testament. One, one way that would be good and right to think about the Old Testament is that it's really just one big promise of what God is going to do. It's God looking at us and saying, let me show you, let me tell you what it is that I'm gonna be doing in the world. Let me, let me show you my promises. It's one big promise. Now, if you just kind of trace through how do these promises work in the Old Testament, um, it goes all the way back to the garden. That's where the story of the promises of God start. We sin against God. In the midst of our sin, God comes and makes a promise. I'm gonna bring one. He's gonna come out of the, the woman it's going to be a seed of the woman. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. You keep reading on in Genesis. You get to Genesis chapter 12 and we learn that this one who's going to be coming out of the woman, that the seed of the woman, he's also going to be out of the line of Abraham. He's going to be a son of Abraham. This is what you can know about this one. So of all the peoples of the earth, he's going to come out of the line of Abraham. Then later on in, in Genesis, we learn, or later on in the Old Testament, we learn in 1 Samuel 7, that it's not just out of all the families of the earth, it's going to be Abraham. It also narrows it down in the family of Abraham. Out of all the families of Abraham, we know, it's going to, the, the one promise is going to come out of the line of David. He's going to be a son of David. So this whole Old Testament is setting up the promise of God sending one that will come and rescue us in our sin. This is what we have in the Old Testament. Now, if you can just imagine the moment where the Old Testament is closing and the New Testament is beginning, it is hard to describe the sort of discouragement that the people of God would have felt in that moment. How is God ever going to come through on his promises? The, the kingdom of David is crumbled. I mean, it's in shambles. The people of God are in exile. How is God ever going to come through? It doesn't look like there's any way that there's gonna be one come out of the line of Abraham, out of the line of David, who's gonna come and rescue us. On top of all of that, by the time you get to the New Testament, the prophetic voice of God had disappeared for 400 years. Can you imagine that for 400 years, you have not heard the prophetic voice of God thunder to, to his people. It's just been silence for 400 years. It is hard to describe the sort of anguish and disappointment and discouragement a first century Jew would have felt about the promises of God. If you were a first century Jew at that time, you would have along with them been feeling, God has abandoned us. There is no way God is keeping his promises. There is no way God's gonna keep the promise that he made. Now, I love how Mark Dever describes his New Testament book. So his Old Testament volume is Promises Made. Then you get to this New Testament, combines all those books together and he names that one, the New Testament. And here's the tagline, Promises Kept. The New Testament is the record of God keeping his word on every promise he made in the Old Testament. This is what the New Testament is doing. It is showing us that in the person and work of Jesus, his coming, his, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, that God is, is keeping every single promise that he has made to his people. This is what the New Testament is doing. It's showing that God is a promise keeper. Now you get to the New Testament and it's ironic. Here is the way the New Testament opens. 
happens here is the first line of the New Testament. Now ask yourself, what is the first line of the New Testament trying to convince us of? Here's the first line. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, who is this Jesus that's coming here? He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. Now, what is Matthew trying to show us there? Matthew is starting his gospel out with a genealogy that starts with Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham to say, hey, do you know the one that's been promised? Do you know the one that you've been waiting for? Do you know the one that's gonna be in the, the line of, of Abraham, the line of David? Hey, do you know that one? God has kept his promise in the person and work of Jesus. That promise, the one that you've been waiting for, he has arrived, his name is Jesus. This is how uh, Matthew starts his gospel, reminding us God is a God who keeps his promises. Now, let me just apply this really briefly. Matthew is starting his gospel by reminding us God is a promise keeper. He keeps his word. And I just can't help but believing there's some of us in the room today that, that find ourselves in a situation very similar to the people of God in the first century. They're looking at their lives and they're looking at God and they're asking that question. It sure doesn't seem like you're keeping your promises. It sure doesn't seem like you're faithful to your promises. We're in that season of waiting and in those seasons of waiting, just like the people of God then, we begin to question, is God really gonna keep his promise? Is God really gonna do that? Like we're looking at our life and we're just wondering, how could Romans 8, 28 ever be true when we're sitting in the smoldering ashes of our burnt life? when it just feels hopeless, it doesn't feel like God could ever redeem and resurrect this thing. Here is what the opening chapter of the New Testament is trying to convince you. If God could keep his promise to the people of Israel of him sending a redeemer who would set this world aright, he will keep every other promise he has made to you. Every promise that seems hard to believe right now in your life, if you can look back at this moment, of, of God becoming flesh, if you can see God doing this, the big thing, how much more could he keep the small things in your life and my life? God really is a promise keeper. Every promise he's ever made to you, he's gonna show himself to be faithful to you in that. The second thing we learn about Jesus is that he is the promise one. Here's the third thing we learn about Jesus. We learn that Jesus is at the center of God's work in history. Jesus is at the center of God's work in history. I don't know how many of you are avid news watchers. Like every day you're going to turn on whatever kind of your news source is and you're going to kind of get the updates of the world. If that's you, I think it's important that you know this if you watch the news every day. Watching the news every day is doing things that, that in most moments you can't even discern. It is pulling your soul toward conclusions about life that, that in most moments we can't, we don't even know that they're happening. And here's the big conclusion it's drawing us to every time we flip on the news and we watch it. We are being lured into a way of seeing the world that says, here's what's really important in world history. What's really important in the world is the rise and falls of kingdoms. What's really important in the world is this person rising in power and that person descending in power. That's the really important things in the world. But then there's the Bible. And the Bible is showing us that at the end of the day, those aren't the most important things in the world. It's interesting that the New Testament opens and think about, like, think about uh, the New Testament, Matthew 1.1 1, 1, as the announcement of news. Now this is the Bible's version of like the big news. Not like the small news, but like the big news. 
And isn't it interesting that the New Testament doesn't open by reporting news back in Rome. It doesn't open reporting news of the latest person who's risen in power, the latest person who's ascended in power, the latest kingdom who's risen, the latest kingdom who's... It doesn't report any of those things. Here's how the New Testament opens. By reporting the news of a seemingly insignificant family line that leads to a seemingly insignificant little baby born in a manger in the backwater town of Bethlehem. And isn't it ironic that in a billion years from now, that's the news we're all gonna be talking about. It's showing us what is ultimately important. It's showing us what is at the center of God's work in history, not the peripheral edge like the rise and falls of kingdoms, but what is at the center of God's work in history, namely the person and work of Jesus. The New Testament opens with a genealogy because it wants you to see this is the most important thing in history. This is it. The seemingly insignificant thing of Jesus is the definitive work of God in history. God sending his beloved son to earth, strapping on human flesh, living perfectly in our place, dying on the cross for our sin, risen from the dead on the third day. That is God's definitive big work in all of history. He's showing us that. Third thing we learn about Jesus is that Jesus is at the center of God's work in history. Here's the first, uh, fourth thing we learn about Jesus. We learned that Jesus isn't going away. Jesus isn't going away. The story of Jesus doesn't start in a manger. It starts all the way back in a garden. It finally gets to a manger and it gets to a cross. It gets to a resurrection. But here's the thing, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end in a manger. It doesn't end in a death. It doesn't end in a resurrection. Jesus then ascends to the right hand of the throne of God where he today is ruling this world, sustaining this world. And here's what the Bible tells us. At the end of history, every single one of us are gonna find ourselves on our knees before this great King Jesus. Every single one of us. There is no getting away from Jesus. This is how Paul says it in Philippians chapter two. Therefore, God has exalted Therefore, God has exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow that is in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is where history is ending. This is what is in front of every human being. Jesus is not only, maybe you can think of it this way, Jesus is not only the center of history, he is also the end of history. In this way, history is really linear. It starts with God, it's sustained by God, and one day it's going to end for every human being before God. This is where history is going. Malcolm Muggeridge was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. Uh, he was born over in England, lived over in England. He was a journalist, an author, kind of a writer. So he's kind of a wordsmith. And listen to him describe the towering, person of Jesus over all of history. Listen to him describe this. He says it like this. We look back upon history and what do we see? When you think about history, what, what do we see in history? Here's what we see. Empires rising and falling. We see revolutions and counter revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has written of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I look back upon my own fellow countrymen, talking about Great Britain. I look back upon my own fellow countrymen, once upon a time dominating a quarter of the world. Most of them convinced in the words of what is still a popular song, that the God who made them mighty will make them mightier yet. 
I've heard of a crazed, cracked Austrian talking about Hitler, announced to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I have seen an Italian clown talking about Mussolini say he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I have seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than the rest of the world put together. So that had the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquest. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all of them gone. Gone, uh, gone with the wind. England, a part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini, dead, remembered only in infamy. America, with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victories of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all of them gone, gone with the wind. And behind the debris of these solemn supermen, there stands the gigantic figure of one because of whom, by whom, and in whom, and through whom alone mankind may still have peace. Who is that? The person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who towers over all of history. He is the one who will be there at the end of history. When all of these empires that we feel like are so big and so important today, when all of them are gone with the wind, there will be Jesus. Amen? This is what we learn about Jesus in the genealogy. But there's something else we learn in this genealogy. Here's the second thing. We learn something about Jesus. And secondly, we learn something about the gospel of Jesus Christ we learn something about the gospel and the genealogy of Jesus. And let me just work at this from a few different angles here. Here's the first thing we learn about the good news of Jesus. We learn that the gospel is for gender outsiders, for gender outsiders. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting just to, to kind of look through the genealogy. And one of the, the surprising things that you'll find is that in that genealogy, there are five ladies. Now, that is not overly shocking to our kind of modern 21st century ears, but if you were a first century Jewish man or woman, that would have been massively shocking for you. Now, why is that? It's because in that patriarchal sort of society at that time, women just were not included in genealogies. That's not how people trace their family trees. It's not how it worked. But that's not true for Jesus's genealogy. Jesus willingly inserts women into his genealogy. So, so what's it saying there? What, what's the point of that? Matthew is announcing in the genealogy of Jesus that in Jesus, there are no gender outsiders, that all people, male and female, are equally welcome to enjoy Jesus. Here it is again. Matthew's announcing that in the, the genealogy of Jesus, in the gospel of Jesus, there are no gender outsiders, all people, male and female, are equally welcome to enjoy Jesus. The gospel is for gender outsiders. Here's the second thing we learn about the good news of Jesus. The gospel is for racial outsiders. It's for racial outsiders. Now think about the context of this genealogy. It's, uh, it's in the book of Matthew. Matthew is writing about a Jewish man. His name is Jesus. So he's writing about a man. His name is Jesus. The man he's writing about is a Jewish man. He is also writing to a Jewish audience. So he's writing about a Jewish man to a Jewish audience. But it's ironic when you read through the, the genealogy, the genealogy isn't all Jewish. 
there's outsiders in the genealogy. Now, let me just give you a couple of examples of this. Verse three, you find one. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now you might just underline her. She was an outsider. She was not an insider. She was a Canaanite. She was not of the people of Israel, but she finds herself in the line leading to Jesus. So you have a racial outsider in it. Then you come on down to verse five. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now Rahab takes us all the way back to Joshua chapter two. The people of God are spying out the land uh, that God had promised to them. And one of the cities they come to to spy out is Jericho. So these spies go into the land. They kind of figure out what the, you know, the ins and outs of Jericho. Inside Jericho, uh, Rahab protects them, allows them to hide in her home, gets them safely outside of the city so they can return. When they come then back into Jericho and take over Jericho, they spare Rahab. And Rahab, an outsider, she's not a part of the Jewish people. That outsider Rahab finds herself in the line leading to Jesus. She's included in the family of Jesus. Then you come down to the second part of verse five. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by, here's another outsider, Ruth. Now, who was Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite. Now, how were the Moabite people started? Uh, they were started from Lot, not Abraham. They were not of the, the line of Abraham, but they were of Abraham's kinfolk, Lot. And Lot had two daughters and they were not married. And the daughters began kind of a freak out moment of how are we gonna have kids? How are we gonna have descendants? And so they get their dad drunk and have babies with their dad. This is how the Moabites, uh, Moabites started in that sort of a position. And Ruth was a Moabite. She's, a, she's an outsider. She's not a part of the people of God. She's not a part of, of the people of Israel, but yet she finds herself inside of the family tree of Jesus. She's included, uh, even though she's a, uh, you know, a racial outsider, she is included in the people of God. So what is going on here? What is the genealogy trying to show us? Here's the point of the genealogy. The genealogy is showing us the good news of Jesus. That, it, that the good news of Jesus isn't selective for just this race or, or that gender or that group of people. But the genealogy of Jesus is showing us that the good news of Jesus welcomes all people of all ethnicities, of all races. The reason you are sitting here today as a Gentile, most of you, the reason you're in a church right now celebrating Jesus is because the good news of Jesus is not just for Jewish people. It is for all peoples, Gentile people like you and like me. Now, let me just apply this really briefly. Um, one of the things that I just continue to pray for Stonegate is that God would give us a heart to see the good news of Jesus reach all peoples and all ethnicities of all cultures that God would continue to give us a heart for that. He would pass along his heart for that and pass it into to this church family. You know, when I think of Revelation chapter five and chapter seven, it gives us glimpses of heaven. And here's the glimpses of heaven that we find. We find in heaven that there's people of every tongue, every tribe and every nation. And they're around the throne of Jesus and they're worshiping Jesus. And here's the amazing part. They're doing that together. Isn't that amazing? They're doing that together. And one of the things I'm praying for our church family is that we would see that future picture of heaven, every culture, every ethnicity around the throne of Jesus, worshiping Jesus together. And God would give us a longing to see more of that heaven brought right now to earth. That, that we would long and desire and work as a church family to see that picture of heaven come true for this church family 
that we would be a church family where cultures don't have to like, you know, a racist don't have to kind of check their cultures at the door and their preferences at the door and kind of come in and just have our preferences. But we would be a church who is saying to all ethnicities, man, you can come on in without checking your stuff at the door and we're going to celebrate all cultures. We're going to rejoice in, in the, the varied sort of ways that we can approach God and worship God and sing to God and love God. We're going to celebrate that together as a church family. So we learn through this genealogy that the gospel is for racial outsiders like you and like me. And here's the third thing we learn about the gospel of Jesus from this genealogy, that the gospel is also for moral outsiders. It's for moral outsiders. And aren't we all grateful for that, by the way? It is for moral outsiders. You know, rather than thinking about the genealogy of Jesus as a genealogy, I think it would be more appropriate if you want to know like the context of what a genealogy is doing to think of it like a resume. It's really a resume of Jesus. This is what it's doing. Matthew's point in in relating this genealogy is to show us Jesus actually has the resume to be the one promised to you from God in Genesis 3 to set this world aright. This is Matthew's point in that. Now, if you think of it in terms of a resume, Think about the last time you put together a resume. Here is what you likely did when you put together that resume. You exaggerated the good and you downplayed the bad in your story. You, you told someone, hey man, this is all the reasons you should hire me. And you left out all the reasons they shouldn't. This is typically what resumes are doing. But this is not Jesus's resume. One of the things I love about the Bible is its brutal honesty. It is a brutally honest book. And let me just run through some of the people in Jesus's resume. Some of the people back in his family kind of history and story, the not so good side of this. There's the overtly sort of bad people. The the people that it's not hard to see the bad in them, right? So if you go to verse nine, you have Ahaz. Verse 10, you've got Manasseh. The Bible, when it talks about those two people, basically gives not one redeeming quality about them. It's just like, there's just not much to like about him. That's kind of the Bible's take on those guys. Then you get down to Jacob in verse two. Isaac, the father of Jacob, we're introduced to Jacob. And his name really says it all. His name means deceiver. This is the man who stole the birthright from his brother. All throughout his life, he's deceiving people, right? This is our man, you know, Jacob. Uh, Not what you would call a great guy. You keep going in this. You get down to verses two and three and you see that uh, Jacob fathered Judah. We're introduced to this man, Judah. Now, if you want a snapshot of Judah, you need to go back to Genesis chapter 37 and 38. Genesis 37 starts out really bad. Judah and his brothers decide they're gonna sell, or actually they decide they're gonna kill their younger brother, Joseph. Then they had kind of a soft moment of, we can't kill him, so what are we gonna do? We're gonna sell him into slavery. We'll do that to him. So you have that moment in Genesis chapter 37, but that really wasn't even Judah's worst moment. His his worst moment comes in Genesis 38. And it's ironic that the genealogy in Matthew 1 points us back to Genesis 38, the worst moment in Judah's life when it gives Judah's sons. And it says, who's the mom of of those sons by Judah? It's Tamar. That's the mom of those sons. Now that's pointing us back to Genesis 38. And here's the story that we find in Genesis 38. Uh, Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. God looked at that son and he was so wicked that God just killed him. Now I read that story this week thinking, but by the grace of God, that's exactly what God would have done to me. He just looks at him and kills him. It's just one of those moments in the Bible where we see the holiness of God and the mercy of God is so ever present in the Bible that those moments where the holiness of God flashes are really shocking to us. But it's like, welcome to what every one of our stories should be if God just flashed his holiness in our life. He just kills him. 
And then um, how the story goes on is the brother then, so Judah had another son and that brother of, of the deceased you know, husband uh, from Tamar, he, he should have stepped in and had uh, offspring by Tamar so the family line could have gone through Tamar, but he wouldn't do that. So God kills him. I mean, he's just killing everybody in Genesis 38. And uh, so you have that moment go down. And then uh, Tamar realizes that, you know, there's a third uh, brother in the picture, but he's young. And Tamar realizes there's no way Judah is going to give that younger uh, brother to Tamar for offspring. There's no way that he's gonna do that. So Tamar dresses like a prostitute, hangs by the side of the road one day, and Judah buys the prostitute not knowing it's his daughter-in-law. And the chickens kind of come home to roost when she's pregnant. He doesn't know by who. He threatens to stone her. And she's like, well, it's ironic, but they're your kids. That's our man Judah. Not, not what you would call an overly great guy. He's got a checkered past. And it just keeps going from there. In uh, verse five, you're introduced to Rahab. She also has a sketchy past. She has been selling her body as a prostitute, Right? So, so you just kind of get a sense right off the get-go that there is brutal honesty going on here. The, the, the bad parts of Jesus's family story, they're all included in this genealogy. Not one of them are downplayed. But then you would think, surely there's gotta be some good guys in the genealogy. There's gotta be someone we could look at in Jesus's family tree and say, man, that was the good guy. Let's be more like them. Surely there's someone like that. So in verse two, we're introduced to Abraham. He was the father of Isaac. Now, if you grew up in, I, I grew up in a, in a kind of a church context where, man, we sang about Father Abraham. I mean, he was that guy that we were singing about. But here is what you learn about every biblical character. There's always a but in their life. He's Father Abraham, but, and here is the big but in his life. This is a guy who uh, committed adultery on his wife and not once, but twice, looked at another man and in an effort to save his own tail said, hey, you can have my wife. Yeah, you can do that. That's our man, Abraham. So a guy that appears to be pretty good, there is a big butt that makes him not so good. So, so sure there's gotta be someone else. And you get down to verse six and it says, and Jesse, the father of David, then it adds this little descriptive mark about David, the king surely this is gonna be our good guy in the narrative. Surely this is gonna be the one redeeming sort of person in the family tree of Jesus. Surely this is gonna be the one. But then the genealogy says, and David was the father of Solomon. And then it adds this little line, by the wife of Uriah. Now, why would it include that little line about it being, or, you know, Solomon, you know, the whole thing being the wife of Uriah? Why, why would he add that? Here's the reason. Matthew's wanting us to recall a moment in David's life that was not so good. He is intentionally getting us to think about a moment that was not good, that was not a flattering moment, that was not a good guy moment in David's life. And if you remember that moment, it's the moment when David saw Bathsheba and said, I want her. And just primal urges took over in David. And he had her and he had a, a, a son by him. And in an effort to cover up the whole thing, he kills his man Uriah. Uriah was one of his mighty men, a guy that had sacrificed life and limb to protect David. David totally sells him up the river and to protect his adultery, to cover his story, murders his friend. Now, what is the point of the genealogy here? What is it trying to show us? Here's the point. The good guys turn out not to be so good in the end, don't they? 
the point the genealogy is making is that Jesus's family tree is full of crooked limbs. There are no straight limbs in the family tree of Jesus. I love how one pastor says it. He says it this way. These names are included in the line that leads to Christ so that you can know that your name, regardless of the wreckage behind your name, you can know that your name can be included in the line that leads from Christ. Here it is again. These names are included in the line that leads to Christ so that you can know that your name, regardless of the mess of your name, that your name can be included in the line that leads from Christ. The genealogy shows us that there's no such thing as put together people, only those who pretend like it. The genealogy shows us that the grace of God really is amazing. What makes the, the good news of Jesus such good news? The genealogy shows us. What makes it such good news is that through it, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, adulterers like Abraham are redeemed. Murderers like David are rescued. Liars and deceivers like Jacob are changed. Ladies like Rahab who would sell their bodies and men like Judah who would purchase those bodies, they can all be rescued. That's what the genealogy of Jesus is showing us. The good news of Jesus announces grace and mercy of hope for those who have really and royally messed up their lives. The genealogy of Jesus is showing us that when grace and sin collide, grace wins. That's what the genealogy of Jesus is showing us. This is the reason that we sing that old hymn, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. That's what the genealogy of Jesus is showing us. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. Now I wanna end by just applying that for just a moment here and then we'll be finished. In Luke chapter five, there is an interesting moment where Jesus states the purpose of his life. I'm gonna put it on the screen for you. Here's what he says about it. Jesus says it this way. And Jesus answered them and said this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, it's those who have a need of a physician. Then he states the purpose of his life. I have come to call the, uh, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now let's just think about what he's saying here. Here's what he is not saying. Jesus is not saying there are some people who are sick and there are some people who are healthy. And the reason that I came, it's to redeem and save those who are sick. That is not the point he's making here. Let me clarify what he is saying here. He is saying that the whole lot of humanity were all sick. We're all sick on our sin. This is you, this is me, this is every human being that has ever existed. We're all sick. The point he is making is only some people know that they're sick. We're all sick, but some people actually think that they're well. And some people actually know that they're sick. And it's the people who are sick and know they're sick. Jesus is saying, man, it's to those people that my grace is about to flow into their life and rescue and redeem them. But it's to those people who are sick, but they think that they're well. It's those people who will never open up their life to me and let grace flow into them. That's the point Jesus is making. We're all sick. It's just only some of us know that we're sick. I love how one uh, old theologian, how he kind of summarized the point Jesus is making here. He says it this way. At the end of the day, there's only one thing you need to become a Christian. 
There is only one thing, just one thing that you need to become a Christian. All you need is need. That's it. All you need is to know that you need it. That's the only thing you need to receive the grace of God. The problem is so few people know they need it. So many people think that they're well when they're actually sick. This is the point Jesus is making here. See, at the end of the day, when you think of Christmas, it is very appropriate to think of Christmas like this. It is God giving you and me a gift and the gift is Jesus. But here is the hard thing about Christmas and the gift of Jesus. Some gifts are harder to receive than other gifts. Let me illustrate. If you just picture a moment, it's just, it's Christmas. Just go there with me. It's Christmas day. There's that one gift that you've been kind of waiting to, un, you know, to, to unwrap and to see what it is. And you tear into that gift and to your shock and awe, you open up a gift and it's a book. And the title of the book is, how to lose 60 pounds in 60 days. And then there's a little note that said, hey, just thinking about you when I got this book. Now, you, you know there's a problem in that moment, right? That's a hard gift to receive. If you opened up that package and it said, how not to be annoying. Just thinking about you when I got, that's a hard gift to receive, isn't it? Now, why is that a hard gift to receive? Because in the moment of receiving it, you are acknowledging something painful to acknowledge about yourself. Welcome to the reason that the gift of Jesus is so hard for people to receive. Because to receive the gift of Jesus, you are acknowledging the worst thing that could be said about you. Here's what you're acknowledging. You are so bad, so lost in your sin. You have messed up your life to the point that you can't save yourself. Therefore, God had to come down in human flesh, live perfectly for you, die on the cross for your sin, resurrected from the dead on the third day so that you could be rescued. That's what makes it so hard. It's because by receiving Jesus, we are saying, I guess we're really that bad. I guess, I guess we're so bad that we can't clean ourselves up. I guess we're so bad that it takes another to come and die for us to, to, to rescue us. I guess we're that bad. See, it takes no divine intervention in a human being's life for a human being to think like this. You know, I'm a pretty good person. Jesus is a little bit better than me. So you know what? I'm just gonna try to be more like Jesus. It, it, it takes no work of God in a human being's heart to think like that. But here is what does take the work of God in a human being's heart. I'm so lost and desperate in my sin that apart from Jesus, I am doomed. And God in his grace has sent the one thing I need, namely himself to live and die and be raised from the dead on my behalf. God, come and save me. That takes divine intervention. That takes God doing something in a human heart. This is the strange irony of the Bible. It's those who think they're well that ultimately end up dying. That's the strange irony. And it's those who know they're helplessly choking on sin. Those who know that their life is broken beyond their ability to fix it. Those who know that their heart is so dark that the next self-help book just can't remedy it. It's those people who actually end up living. Let me end by this from one of my favorite pastors. He summarizes it this way. What do we learn about the genealogy? Here's what we learn about the gospel from the genealogy. There is no one then 
Not even the greatest human being who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no one then, not even the greatest of us, who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is no one, not even the worst human being, who is beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals, equally sinful and lost and equally accepted and loved. Amen? Let's pray together. This is that point in our service where we get to respond to the Lord and just giving you a second to allow the spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful to remove the things that wouldn't be. And This genealogy shows us who's in that line that leads the promised one, Jesus. And here is what the good news of Jesus shows us. The gospel shows us that there is an open invitation to be a part of that line leading from Jesus. It just welcomes us in. It's inviting us, come, come and enjoy Jesus. And what a good thought for us to consider this morning that one day, the Jesus that towers over human history, one day we will find ourselves right there before him. And the genealogy shows us that even the best of us on that day are gonna look really, really bad. The genealogy shows us that we're all in need of grace. Even the best of us are in need of grace. It shows us that, that if on that day, what we're banking on to make us right with God is some of our good behavior, that just like Abraham, we're gonna look really silly on that day. Just like David, if we start pointing back at our past as the reason God should love us, we're gonna look so silly. The genealogy shows us that we are in great need of grace. And this genealogy also shows us that we're not beyond the capacity of God's grace to rescue and redeem us. It doesn't matter how bad you have been, grace always has the ability, the capacity to chase your sin down, cover it and cleanse it. Some of you are sitting here today and you just feel worthless. The genealogy shows us that you are precious to God. God hasn't forgotten you, he hasn't abandoned you. You are so precious to God that he would give his beloved son to redeem you. Genealogy shows us that when grace and sin collide, grace wins. And, and the real question is, are you humble enough to receive that gracious gift from God? How do, we, how do we receive that gift? The Bible says we need to turn from all of those bad deeds in our past that we know disqualify us before God. But not just those bad deeds, 
we also have to turn from all of those good deeds in our past that we think actually qualify us before God. We turn from all of that and we throw ourselves on the promised one of God, promised to crush the head of the serpent, to restore what was lost in the garden, to fix what sin has broken. The son of Abraham, the son of David, this one who lived for us, died for us, risen from the dead on the third day, we throw our life upon his life. And in that moment, we find the arms of God wide open as he welcomes us into his family. And man, if that's you, we would love to celebrate that with you today. If you need to receive Jesus for the first time, grab that card under your seat, fill that out, check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus, slide that in that basket at the end. And man, we would love to throw a party with you today. Now for the rest of us in the room, oh, that God would deepen our amazement at his grace. The grace of God today would put a song in our soul that we really could sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I'm found. Man, I was blind, but by your grace now I see. Oh, God, help us. God, if there's sin in our life, will you show it to us now? God, if there are things we need to repent of and own, God, would you break our hearts right now? Would you give us the courage to bring those before you, to get those things out in the light, to allow your good grace to cover those things? God help us. It's in your good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.